Hello, friends. My name is Misty Denman. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and it really is my joy to get to be here with you today. Many of us, I would definitely include myself in this, can say we love a good story. And I would say the book of Revelation has been one of my favorite stories. Haven't we discovered that the entire book of Revelation has all those elements we learned in English about what a good story is? It has great settings, a great plot, there's twists, there's heroes and villains and sidekicks. There's unbelievable settings, more action than we could ever um, believe. And I keep thinking that if I didn't know that this was a true story out of God's own word, I'd kind of think it was too out there to be believable and wouldn't like it, but it's, it's been a pretty amazing journey. So I read a lot of novels and a pattern um, follows for me in almost every good novel I read, which is when I get about 80 or 90% of the way through with it, I'll start to read faster and faster because the tension's been building, all the conflict's building, and I cannot wait to find out what happens at the end. So I'll read faster than I normally do. At the same time I'm reading faster than I normally do though, I have this simultaneous regret in the back of my mind that the faster I read, the faster it'll be done and I don't want to finish it because it's been so good. I've sort of noticed that that's the feeling I have with Revelation um, in the last few weeks. But I think today and the two weeks to follow are going to leave us in awe of the best story ever told and the end of the best story ever told. Today, we actually start out by adding an epilogue to the end of Jesus' triumphant return that we studied last week. Then we cover 1,000 years of history, the last 1,000 years of history of life on earth. And then finally, we end with this take your breath away scene that is beginning to change how I view my mission of life in general, and it may do the same for you. So remember with me that great battle in chapter 19 at the end of the tribulation, Jesus returned to earth with all those armies of heaven behind him. He captured the beast and the false prophet, cast them into the lake of fire, and then he annihilates all of his evil enemies with just that sword of his mouth. Chapter 20 is going to pick up exactly where 19 left off. If we didn't have the Bible divided into uh, chapters and verses, we would have just continued on with it from last week. So if you would open your Bibles with me now to Revelation 20 and this, let's continue that great story we began last week. I'm gonna start us out by reading just the first three verses. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So here we see Satan is bound. You know, as we've seen before, John has been given here this prophetic vision and some interpretation to go with it. We know that because although he can see what's happening to Satan, he would only be able to understand the time frame and the purpose for it by being given some of that interpretation. This is another great victory of Jesus. First, the beast and the false prophet 
cast into hell, and now then the beast's followers are annihilated, and now an angel binds Satan with chain, casts him into the bottomless pit for 1,000 years. This pit, which is also sometimes called the abyss, is the same place that those nasty locusts came out of in chapter 9. Now, throughout the book of Revelation, John, I think, has been very purposeful to point out that God, God alone has authority and rule even when it looks like the world is out of control. Everything that Satan, the Antichrist, his followers do is allowed by God for God's purposes and only for an allotted time. Here, it's absolutely no different. God's angel simply follows orders. He imprisons Satan, he seals up the abyss, and there is no indication of a struggle of any kind. That's encouraging to me. Now, Scripture teaches us uh, for good reason to be aware of and wary of Satan. He is a thief looking to steal, kill, and destroy, and he's always, always there to deceive. What is it that these verses say that Satan will no longer be able to do when he's imprisoned? He will not be able to deceive, but right now he can. And his deceptions can be subtle and attractive enough to be hard to see and combat. And that is why we remember the truth of 1 John 4, 4 on your verse sheet. Look at that with me. For he who is in you, that is the Lord Jesus, is greater than he who is in the world. And that is really why we commit ourselves as wholeheartedly as we do to studying scriptures and steeping ourselves in the truth so that when we hear that subtle or outright deception of Satan, we can recognize it and combat it with the truth. I think it's the most powerful weapon we have against the deceiver. But as formidable as an enemy as he is, when God chooses to exercise his authority over Satan, his authority and power is absolute. Satan could not stand against him, will not be able to. So with this binding of Satan, he is rendered powerless. And during his 1,000 year imprisonment, he will have no influence over the world. I think that uh, truth should fill us with, really with peace and courage today because we can take heart in the truth that God is the one in control. He is in control of our present. He is in control of our future. And we can hold on to the truth of Exodus 15 on our verse sheet. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Okay, let's continue on and read verses four through six. So much more happening here. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. 
There is so much to talk about here. Jesus reigns on earth for 1,000 years, and this time is referred to as the millennial kingdom. Millennial means king, or a thousand. The kingdom refers to Jesus' literal thousand-year reign on earth. He will be king of the whole world, and this will begin just after he returns to earth at the end of the tribulation. But before we dive into the millennial kingdom, there's a few um, important questions we need to answer about these verses because I think they're fairly tricky. The first one is, who did John see sitting on the thrones and who was it that they were judging? So the most logical explanation for verse four is that it is talking about the 24 elders who we've seen through the book of Revelation. Those 24 elders represent the church, all of the New Testament believers that begin um, with Jesus' disciples. So that is us. But included here is this special mention of the tribulation martyrs. They will not have been in the grave very long when they're resurrected to be a part of those who are reigning with Christ. I think their special mention here speaks so loudly about the goodness of God. During the tribulation, these new believers will suffer intensely as never before in history. They'll experience unprecedented exclusion and humiliation um, in society. Here, God turns their suffering on its head and publicly rewards them with this mention in scripture. It highlights their faithfulness. For me, it's such a shining showcase of God's loving kindness. When those men and women during the tribulation will die um, for the name of Jesus, really they are only doing what God is deserving of, but he honors them anyway with this uh, mention here in scripture because he is that gracious and generous. The next question I have to ask is, what is the first resurrection and what is the second death? We talked about this a little bit in our homework, but we'll talk about it more now. Specifically here, the first resurrection is, is um, God raising those martyred saints back to life in glorified bodies to rule with him on earth. But more generally, the first resurrection refers to every believer who will be raised to life before the millennial kingdom begins. And that will include you and me. We are described here as blessed, as holy, as priests who will be granted indescribable privilege of ruling with Christ in his earthly kingdom. And we are told also very importantly that the second death has no power over us, which when we come to what that looks like at the end of this chapter will fill us with gratitude. These verses here where we are blessed and holy and counted as priests in his kingdom, I think are a place to linger over and be thankful for in the days to come. In contrast to the first resurrection, everyone who dies apart from Christ will experience the second death. Their first will be when they die their natural death at the end of their lives. The second will be when they are judged before that great white throne and cast into the lake of fire forever. So the phrase second death is a really chilling um, phrase in direct contrast to first resurrection, which is a great promise for those who believe. Okay, finally, let's talk about the millennial kingdom. I don't know if you felt like this, but I was so surprised when I realized how few details John gives us about this astonishing thousand years of time. I'm not criticizing John at all, but if it were up to me, I would have had him include 
a lot more details than he did. John chose to be more of a big picture guy here. And so here's what we learn from this passage. Jesus will reign on earth as king for 1,000 years. This is a literal 1,000 year time frame. It's mentioned six times through the chapter and there's really no reason not to take this as a literal amount of time. Now, who will the people be who are alive when Jesus takes his earthly throne? It will be the Christ followers who survived through the tribulation. And all believers who have died and been raised back to life before this will be given the privilege of ruling alongside him during this time. This is a moment to let that truth sink in because it is honestly astonishing when you think about it. I am doing that um, this week, just sort of dwelling on and pondering on the fact that Jesus is gonna give us this amazing reward. I hope you'll get a chance to do that as well. When I was in elementary school, if you had asked me what I thought I would do when I grew up, what my great goal and dream was, um, I wanted to be a veterinarian. But the thing that I really wanted to do if that didn't pan out was to be the governor of Texas. I remember writing a paper in third grade about how I uh, dreamed of becoming the governor of Texas. So my, um, my hope is during this millennial rule that I will get to serve a term or two as the governor of Texas. That may still be in my future here. Because of John's brevity on the matter, I'm especially glad for a handful of both Old and New Testament passages that shed some more light on what this kingdom will look like. We looked at a few of them in our homework questions this week. This amazing portrait emerges when you really start looking at it carefully. When Jesus comes, um, uh, reigns and returns, he sets up his headquarters in Jerusalem which will then become the center of a worldwide government and the place from which he and his holy administration will lead and bless the entire world. Here is a time when Israel is restored in full. They will be a strong and holy people, a nation headquartered um, that will, from whom blessing will flow to the whole world. You know, one of the big misunderstandings on Israel's part when Jesus came to earth um, the first time was that they expected him to establish his earthly rule and kingdom, a political kingdom then. That wasn't in his plan at the time, but it will be his plan during the millennial kingdom. And so many of the promises, the Old Testament promises made to Israel by prophets will be fulfilled during this time. And I would imagine for Jewish believers, this is going to be a time of great um, wonder and praise and worship of Jesus. We also learn from passages in Isaiah and in the Psalms that after the devastation of the plagues and the judgments during the tribulation, the millennial kingdom will be a time when the earth is restored and renewed, crops will flourish, the work of our hands and our minds will be fruitful any of us, it's, it's more than any of us have ever experienced in our own lifetimes or in our history. All we know is a fractured world ruled by sinners. There are examples of all over the world of good and wise and compassionate and courageous um, rulers. There are also examples throughout history of evil dictators, all of them from the best to the worst have been sinners and flawed in some way. 
but Jesus will rule on earth with perfect righteousness. Every decision made will be made in perfect wisdom. It will result in blessing and peace and fairness and equity and um, prosperity and respect. No longer will the more powerful be allowed to take advantage of the less powerful. There will no longer be exploitation of people or resources, just the barest glimpse of this kind of leadership fills my heart with hope and joy. And especially because I get to be a part of it. Every nation on earth will worship him. People will live long and healthy lives. Remember Satan is bound during this time, will have no influence or impact over the world at all. Now, while everybody who enters into the millennial kingdom will know Jesus is Lord, they will still have that sin nature that clings to them just as we do now. There will be disputes to settle. There will be decisions to be made, and that will be part of our job. There'll be regional, local um, government that requires leadership. That gets to be our job as well. How great though will it be to have Jesus as our boss and how great will it be to get to make decisions on behalf of people with all the resources you need to meet their needs, to be able to bless them, to be able to care for them well. Listen to how this time is foretold in Psalm 72 on your verse sheet. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper, He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. And then uh, later on, it says, may there be abundance of grain in the land and the tops of mountains, on the tops of mountains may it wave and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as there is the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. This is a picture of what the millennial kingdom will look like. During this wondrous last thousand years on this earth, the whole world will enjoy blessing, restoration, and peace. You know, life often tests our faith. I think the times we're living in now have tested my faith and yours probably as well. But take heart today and look ahead Jesus will fulfill each of his promises to us. He will reward his followers generously. We have a future hope that can provide us with comfort for today. All right, let's continue and pick back up in verse seven. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sea, the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, the millennial kingdom is over here. The next phase of history unfolds before us. Satan leads a revolt. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be unbound and released from that bottomless pit. And there's a few things that are important to notice here. 
The first is that Satan is released at God's command and under God's authority for God's own purpose and plan. He does not escape or otherwise um, take control over his own fate here. And number two, his immediate task once he is released is to deceive the nations. That's who he is. That's what he does. So remember that at the onset of the millennial kingdom, the only people left on earth are those believers who had survived through the tribulation, who had trusted Christ during that time. It's pretty amazing to think about. However, over the generations of that thousand years, the earth will have experienced probably great repopulation. I think there'll be descendants of believers who choose, unfortunately, not to trust Christ, not to follow Jesus. These are the rebellious people who are so numerous that they're called or compared to grains of sand on the seashore. These are the people who Satan gathers into an army. Notice that the fact that Satan is rendered powerless for that thousand years does not change his character or behavior. He cannot be reformed. That's probably intuitive to most of us, but I think it's worth pointing out here. So before we uh, continue with the story, I wanna stop and think about the fact that Satan will be able to gather an army of this size and what it says about the human heart. After many generations, after a thousand years of living under ideal circumstances, a perfectly run political system, a benevolent government, peace, prosperity, getting to see and experience Jesus himself as the living, breathing, wise king. Even then, countless people, when given the opportunity, will turn against him and rebel. They will choose to follow Satan rather than follow Jesus. That says to me, that man's heart is incurably sinful and without the saving grace of Jesus, there is no hope for any of us. Our rebellious spirit, our choice to turn away from God, the first opportunity um, comes from inside of each of us. It doesn't come from outside influences. Jeremiah 17, uh, nine confirms this on your verse sheet. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. Now, it does make sense to me that there would be this huge repopulation of the earth during the kingdom because there would be good health, there'll be abundant resources, there will be no war and so many of the other things that cause premature death. Some of um, the scripture that points to this time talks about the long lives we will lead. It also makes sense to me that the majority of people during this reign will choose to love and follow the Lord but they'll have to come and place their faith in Christ just as we do today. The ideal world they'll live in though probably will make that an easier thing to do than at any other time in history. But even so, many will reject him, whether outright or secretly in their hearts, going their own way, eager to join forces with Satan the minute they get the opportunity to do so. If you've ever asked yourself during our study of Revelation why God's judgment is necessary, here's one of the pictures of why. A couple of personal applications here, I think. Remember this passage when you hear the argument that man is basically good and only turns bad because of the environment or corruption around us or circumstances. The swiftness and ease that Satan gathers this army with refutes that claim to me entirely. Perfect government, peace, All of our needs met and still so many will willingly 
and willfully go their own way, even when they can see Jesus face to face. None of us is basically good. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all need a savior. And I think even a bit closer to home, I thought about how we need to be careful. I need to be careful not to blame my sin on the environment around me or my circumstances. If sin comes out of my own heart, then I have to take the responsibility for it. I have to refuse to blame whatever's happening around me, even when it's really, really hard. Thankfully, we're not asked to do that on our own strength. We do that through the power of the Holy Spirit given to us when we trust Christ. Okay, back to Satan's revolt. He gathers an army from all over the world. The mention of Gog and Magog here is a little bit mysterious. It's probably best understood to look back to an Old Testament um, story and it represents, Gog and Magog probably represent here all of the people and nations that stand against God when Satan returns. The camp of the saints and the beloved city is Jerusalem. We're able with John's words to get a good visual picture of what that will look like. These massive armies coming from all directions, advancing toward Jerusalem, ready to slaughter God's people and even Jesus himself. This is a picture of evil trampling over the glory of the millennial kingdom. And it is a great tragedy in the making, but the time for war is over. Jesus puts a stop to it before it really even can get started. None of his followers in the city are harmed. Before the battle even begins, God destroys those wicked with fire. He calls down fire from heaven. That evil army is immediately consumed. They're stopped in their tracks by that all-powerful living God. When God chooses to act, it does not matter that the army is led by Satan himself. It does not matter that their numbers are too numerous to count. It does not matter that they surrounded Jerusalem on all sides. I love Jesus' words in Matthew 19. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I think verse 10 is worth reading again with some awe and gratitude and wonder here. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and sulfur, that is hell, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. This will be the moment in history where Satan is forever conquered. He will never, ever again destroy what God has created. Praise be to God. We win in the end. I think it is right to be angry and sorrowful now over the misery and destruction that Satan causes, but take heart. A day is coming when our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will permanently defeat Satan forever. You know, when the church is raptured just before the tribulation begins, it's really the beginning of the end of the world as we know it. Step by step, there's the sequence events that we have been studying, planned by our good God, foretold by us in this book, drawing people closer and closer to the new heaven and the new earth. But before that can happen, God must purge the last of evil that is left once and for all. So read with me now in verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away 
and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. God judges unbelievers and what is known as judgment before the great white throne. And there are many thrones mentioned in the book of Revelation. The one we read about here stands alone. This throne represents the ultimate seat of holiness, of wisdom, and of purity of Jesus. Though he's unnamed in verse 11, we know it is Jesus who is sitting on that throne. Look with me at John 5, 22 on your verse sheet. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In verse 11, we learn this astonishing fact that the earth and the sky fled away as easily as the heavens and the earth were spoken into existence. In Genesis, here they are removed, soon to be replaced by the new heaven and earth. But before that happens, there is a day of reckoning here unlike any other. Peter foretold this on your verse sheet. Look with me at 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The dead who are before the great white throne are all the unsaved dead throughout time who are now being raised up for their final judgment. Their standing posture suggests to me sentencing. That's probably a familiar idea. We've all watched countless courtroom dramas in which the defendant is asked to stand before the judge. But what stands out to me as sharply different here than in a courtroom is that here before this throne of God is just total exposure. You know, I'm sure there's a real sense of vulnerability when you're a defendant in a courtroom, but at least there you have that desk to stand behind and a judge or a a lawyer beside you and maybe family behind you. There will be none of that here. The earth is gone. None of us know exactly what that will look like, but in my imagination, I picture total exposure um, for those standing before the throne of God. There's nobody and nothing to hide behind. There's no excuses that can be offered. The dead will stand stand before the white hot holiness of the throne of God and every one of their sins will be laid bare before them. That is a scene to me that is so scary. Every time I read it, it makes my heart beat a little faster. This judgment is not based on whim or on emotion, but on concrete evidence. I wanna talk about that now. There are two sets of books that uh, Jesus opens here. The first is called the book of life. And that book is written the name of every believer who by grace through faith has trusted in Jesus' death and resurrection. The book, that book of life is a roll call for those who have eternal life. Our rebellion against God as believers deserves the same punishment and death as those who rejected him. The difference here is that Jesus took that death and judgment that we deserved on himself, 
paid the price for us. And when we trust in that, our name is written in the book of life. But for those whose name is not found written in this book, there are other books. And these books alongside their names are a record of every one of their deeds. And every one of these people will be judged according to what they've done. And since no one is perfect, not even one, each of them will be found to fall short of the glory of God and his perfect righteousness. And verse 15 spells out their fate. Anyone whose name is not written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. This is a real place with real torment that will last forever. A theologian I read observed this. The ultimate destiny of eternal punishment is not in the last analysis because God wished it, but because they would not come to God for the grace that he freely offered. What each of us must understand is this. In the end, even one sin is enough to warrant the lake of fire. It is not enough to be more good than bad, to have more good deeds than bad deeds written in that book. The scales don't tip in our favor in that way. Look with me at James 2.10 on your verse sheet. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has has become accountable for all of it. Let me just say that again. For whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become accountable for all of it. You know, we've talked about it often in this study, but it should be said here again. Our response to this knowledge of God's coming judgment should not be fear. I think it should be courage. Courage to speak up and to share the gospel. Courage to share our own stories about what Jesus has done in our own lives. Courage to share his love and mercy with our mouths, with our actions, um, with the things we choose to do and the things we choose not to do. To be willing and purposeful about sharing our light and the light of Christ in what is for sure a dim world. The end is going to be grim for those who reject Jesus. But as long as we are doing what we can with all of the energy and the gifts and the talents and the time that he has given us now and the sphere of influence that he has given us. As long as we are doing those things, our souls can be at rest. Have courage, use this time in history right now as I am trying to do as well to be a light in the darkness. Finally, we read that death is thrown into the lake of fire, Paul called death the final enemy of God. I know each of us has known someone in our lives for whom death has been that final enemy as well. The day is coming when death will be no more and that is going to be a great victory. You know, as we look ahead at the last two weeks of our study, we'll catch a glimpse of the new heaven and the new earth that God is preparing for those who love him. And there is hope and there is glory there. The words of John three sixteen are true for us. They're familiar, but so fitting. For God so loved the world that it gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
So even right now, take heart, my friends. The name of the redeemed, that is us, is written in the book of life. We can look forward to eternal life with Jesus forever. I say praise the Lord and hallelujah for that. And let's pray and thank him for that now. Lord God, you are good and you are great. And in this um, time surrounding Easter, we are so aware of um, the truth of our own sinfulness, of our desperate need for a savior. I thank you, Lord, after the study of your word um, and in light of uh, this Easter holiday, for your willingness to make a way for us to live with you forever, for your willingness to make a way for our names to be written in the book of life. I pray that we will be women who are willing to live in light of that, women who are willing to be courageous and speak and live uh, your word and your truth. I pray that our light, would shine bright enough to draw people to you. Would you give us wisdom, Lord, to know what to say and how to say it and when to say it um, so that we can be a part of that? I thank you, Lord, that you are just. I thank you, Lord, um, that you are going to banish sin and death forever and that we will get to live with you in all eternity, those of us who know you. You are good and you're great and we love you. And it's in your holy name we pray, amen.